Illumination, an Inklings-inspired podcast about cultivating a winsome Christian witness with clarity, creativity, and kindness. Mere Caffeination is produced by the Center for Worldview and Culture at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. To learn more about Southwest Baptist University, visit sbuniv.edu. Here's your host, Daniel DeWitt. C.S. Lewis dedicated the screw tape letters to his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, beloved author of the Middle Earth stories. Think hobbits and ogres and long backstories about swords. But did Tolkien even like the screw tape letters? Unrelated, what was the cave where Tolkien and Lewis spent so much time together? Were these two authors into spelunking? And why didn't Tolkien's wife let him hang out at C.S. Lewis's house? Is that why C.S. Lewis and Tolkien weren't very close at the end of Lewis's life? We'll talk about their unique friendship in this episode as we consider some introductory topics related to the screw tape letters, including the question, did C.S. Lewis even believe in the devil? Oh, and we'll get back to our guest, Sam Albury, for the second and final part of our interview to hear what he has to say about whether pastors should be fired for being jerks on social media. We've packed all that into this coffee-infused second episode of Mere Caffeination. When I interviewed Sam, I had a nasty head cold. I apologize for sounding a bit like Darth Vader. He responded in typical fashion with biting sarcasm. Why am I friends with this guy? Are you wish. You sound more like Jar Jar, but if, if you like to think you sound like Darth Vader, then, then yes, let's pretend you do. I think I do sound like Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> all right. In all seriousness. Sometimes Sam has helpful things to say. Like when I asked him about a Tolkien quote about how every bad thing will be undone. It is. I think. Um, I think Samwise says that uh, towards okay. the end. Um, everything sad will, will come untrue, um, which is just a a beautiful way of expressing Christian hope and and the, the kind of the redemptive side of the Bible storyline. Um, it's not that yeah. everything sad is going to be shoved and forgotten and thrown away and discarded. It's it's going to come untrue. It's going to be undone in some way, um, which is. Yeah, just a magnificent, magnificent hope for us. And the resurrection is the key to that um, because that is the linchpin for, for our hope is if, if our hope is as certain as, as Jesus' grave is empty. Um, and, you know, Jesus would have to, to quit being God, come back down to earth and climb back into the grave for us not to have hope for the future. So it's... Again, and it's physical, it's um, embodied hope. Sam is one of those kind of guys that it's hard not to like. I should know. I've tried. Since he's traveled the world, he has an international network of friends. That includes people like Tim and Kathy Keller in New York City. The Kellers have really impacted me, Tim in particular, 
That's why I was interested to ask Sam, what are the Kellers like in real life? Um, yeah, what, wonderfully, Tim. How, how Tim comes across in his sermons um, is is how he is. Um, self, self-deprecating, humble, um, bookish, nerdy in, in all the best senses, and kind of voraciously interested in the world around him and, and how people are thinking and, and wanting to reflect on that from a, from a Christian standpoint. Um, Kathy Keller is, some people will have come across Kathy from things that she's, she's written. She's in places where she's spoken herself, but she is, it's hard to imagine Tim without Kathy um, because uh, she is at, at the very least his intellectual equal, maybe his intellectual better. I think he would say that she's the smart one in the family. Um, and just a very grounded, wise, uh, an amazingly, yeah, amazingly wise Christian lady. Um, so that there's lots of, I mean, you could you could fill a book with the, the sort of wit and wisdom and aphorisms just of Kathy. Um, and like Tim, she's she's a wordsmith as well and is uh, wonderful with words. And given the, the the sort of theme of this of this podcast, she she has she when she was a young girl she wrote letters to c.s lewis and and received three or four letters back um so that that's a pretty special thing too sam and i first became friends through twitter i think he made fun of something i said or pointed out one of my typos or something like that and the rest is history But even after we became friends in real life, in person, Twitter's still been a part of the equation. Not always in good ways. Here's what I mean. There have been times when one of us needs a little help with social media. Sometimes you'll say something on Twitter or Instagram. Sometimes it's perhaps imprudent. Or sometimes it's something that's even true and needs to be said. But it catches not only a lot of attention, but a lot of flack. And that's okay. We're all adults here and we could own up to what we say and at times what we don't say. But sometimes it could get a bit too much. There have been a couple times when Sam and I have kind of offered a service to one another where we take over the other person's social media account, change the password so they don't even have an option to log in and see what people are saying about them. So that's one thing. And what we've done for each other has, has helped me too that the times when i said to you how hey, this is this is just too radioactive right now can you can you handle it There's, and i remember saying to you once when people were upset with something that i'd i'd said i remember saying to you you know if there's a if there's a critique here i need to hear please please pass that on to me if it's people just you know launching grenades i don't need to to see that and it's better that i don't um but i remember you know if there's if there's something that actually it would do me good to hear. You can filter that out and say, hey, well, one critique actually is, is probably worth hearing is this one. Um, so it was it was good having you you be a filter for that. And I was happy to be a filter for you. Um, not least because if, you know, I if, if anyone's giving you a hard time, I want it to be me, um, not some <laughs> other people on Twitter. That's, I, I feel a sense of jealousy about that. I asked Sam about the kind of leader Christians should try to learn from, either in person or in a church, in a, in a book, or even online. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's an important issue, and um, I think there's a lot of confusion about that. We're we're so shaped by social media. We're so shaped by the kind of discourse we see in politics, on cable news, on Twitter, that kind of thing. And so we're wired because of that to think I've got to smack down the other side, whoever the other side happens to be. Um, I've got to own them. I've got to, you know, have the mic drop moments and zingers and all that kind of stuff. Um, I I just don't see that as being the model we're given in scripture. Um, So in, in all that we're doing, as, as Christians, in as much as we have any opportunities to, to put our faith on public display, we've, we've got to be faithful, uh, we've got to be biblical. And it seems to me that what the Bible calls us to is gentleness and respect. Um, there, are, there are times when you see Jesus flipping the tables. There are times you see Paul calling some of his theological opponents dogs in Philippians chapter 3, for example. But in terms of what we are actually told to do, um, it is always when, whenever we're given explicit instructions on how we are to relate to the outsider, every single time we're told to be gracious and respectful. There's there's First Peter chapter three. There's Colossians, goodness, is it Colossians chapter four, where we're to be our conversation is to be filled with grace and seasoned with salt. Um, live good lives among the pagans again. First Peter, every time we are explicitly told how we are to behave and comport ourselves to a wider world, and in Peter's case, a, a very obviously hostile world, we're never given biblical warrant for, for being harsh, uh, for being demeaning. Um, we are instructed, commanded, no less, to be gracious, humble, respectful, and gentle. And so, we have not just the responsibility, but the, the deep honour and privilege of reflecting the heart of Jesus to the world around us. And um, the very heart of, of love that Jesus has shown us, we are then to extend to other people. People are, are, are meant to be able to read off us something of what Jesus himself is like towards them. So that's that's the privilege we have. We, we shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, a friend of mine pointed out, I've never thought of this before, but at, at the beginning of the Gospels, it's the angels, it's the angels who are, announce you know, and herald the, the arrival of Christ. By the end of the Gospels, that job is given to us. And you, you sort of think, maybe the angels would, would be better at this. <laughs> but God has given that responsibility to us now. Um, and it's an astonishing privilege. Um, it's worthy of angelic choirs and you know battalions and all the rest of it and yet we have the privilege now of not just giving people christian theology but but actually trying to reflect to people the very heart and and character of christ himself i asked sam if he thought it was disqualifying for a christian leader to be consistently divisive online i've never met someone who came to faith by someone scolding them on Twitter. Uh, maybe that person exists and I've, I would rejoice to meet them. Um, but it's God's kindness that leads to repentance in um, Romans chapter two, I think it is. Um, I don't see how our, our anger is gonna lead to repentance, whether we're, you know, if we're, whether that's towards the world or towards the church. So it seems to me that the local church is the God designed forum for, for correction to take place. 
Social media is impersonal. Uh, we're often responding not to a person, but to a, you know, a, a, a post of theirs that we don't see the context for. We don't know that the wider body of their thinking and behaving and teaching that, that comes behind that, that kind of comment. So we're dealing with a very incomplete view of someone and we're, we're dealing with someone we, we're not able to look in the eye. And it's so easy to, to unleash against someone you've not met who's just a, an annoyance to you on, on social media. But I don't think that is how the kingdom advances. Um, and for those who are Christian leaders giving serious time to doing that, in, in the pastoral epistle, epistles, being quarrelsome is disqualifying for ministry. And I can think of, of Christian leaders who should have been fired by their churches by now for how they use Twitter, um, because they're using it to be quarrelsome. They're using it to take something someone has said, removing it from its context, putting it in a place, and then saying to a whole bunch of other people, hey, let's all have a go at this guy. And it is just not honouring to Jesus. It is it is as serious a disqualification as, as adultery would be. The, the, the biblical principle is that we are to be taught, uh, we are to learn, uh, we're to grow. We need, we need Christian leaders around us, Christian teachers around us to help us grow in our faith. But the New Testament wants us to, to learn from qualified teachers. And so it's not just enough to, to learn the right things. We've got to be learning the right things from people who are in their own lives, modeling the truth and being consistent with the truth that they're teaching. So that applies to church elders most directly in, in the pastoral epistles. If, if someone is has an amazing ability to, to teach the Bible, but is, is living in a way that would disqualify them from being an elder, you shouldn't be learning from them. Um, they shouldn't be a pastor in your church. And I take it you shouldn't be reading their books so the, the, the Bible wants me to learn from qualified Christian teachers. And so if someone is disqualifying themselves by being quarrelsome, I, the, the Bible is telling me not to learn from them because actually who they are is a significant uh, component in, in what they're teaching. And even if they're saying things that are true, saying things that might have biblical insight and, and, and so on, if their life is not is not matching up with the, the gospel that they're teaching, then as I understand it, the New Testament is telling me not to learn from them. Um, there's, there's, you know, there are things we, we learn from the wider world. There's common grace. So I'm not saying we only ever learn from other Christians. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying when it comes to spiritual nourishment, we're to learn from qualified Christian teachers and, and qualified in that sense is far more about character than it is about gifting or academic skills or ministry platforms or anything like that. If, if someone is humble and godly and faithful to the scriptures, that is the person to learn from. Someone might have a big platform, um, a very charismatic kind of personality, um, be very clever with words, be lauded by lots of other people. But if they're being divisive and quarrelsome, I, I shouldn't be learning from them. Um, that they are they're actually in error and paul shows us that you you don't just abandon the faith in your doctrine you abandon the faith in your behavior one of the things that i want to do with mere caffeination is to highlight 
creative ways that people have shared their faith. I asked Sam if he had a story about a a memorable way that someone had shared the love of God with others. I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning this. Some people were unhappy with something Ray had said once or had misunderstood something he'd said. And um, there's a couple of people who we found out were were planning to protest at our church when Ray was was going to be speaking. Um, And... You know, I think a lot of us, our initial reflex was, how dare they, let, let's go get them kind of thing, protect our friend. Ray's, Ray's response was, let's put out coffee and donuts for them. Because if someone is coming to church, even if they're coming to church for a negative reason, we show them hospitality. Um, let's Let's make sure their experience of us is positive, even if our experience of them might end up being negative. Um, and I just thought that that just had such a counterintuitive but gospel logic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let you know, extend love to someone in 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 a very concrete, practical way. Show them that we're, we're happy for them to be here. Um, I think we even put up a a shade because it was a sunny day. So that you know, trying to serve them. Um, so I love that. I love that. That that kind of thing to me is is a wonderful way of expressing the the surprising love of Christ. The last time I heard Sam preach in person, he talked about loving our enemies. I asked him to share a word on that topic. And I'm thinking of the passage in Romans 12 where where Paul says that you know heaping burning coals on someone's head, and that that's not meant to be in a, a punitive way. It's meant to be in a Kindness shown in the face of hostility can often be a way of of what brings someone to a godly sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what Paul is talking about there, rather than kind of heaping wrath on them. <laughs> but I, I I hope that that would be the case that actually that kind of response would make someone feel shame, ashamed at vilifying someone who's trying to be gracious to them. Yeah, we're we're reflecting. The love that comes down from heaven and um, God God loved us when we were his enemies. Uh, he didn't wait for us to kind of come on side and, and move towards him before loving us. He loved us when we were shaking our fists at him, um, having no time for him. So we, we are to reflect that to, to other people too. Speaking of enemies... In the screw tape letters, the demons call God the enemy. Now keep in mind, Lewis is telling everything from the reverse perspective. The 31 letters making up the fictional correspondence of the screw tape letters are diabolical in every way. As Lewis said, they are intended to get at the psychology of temptation from the other perspective. Here's some of screw tape's first words of advice for how the junior demon, his nephew Wormwood, should try to keep his assigned human, called the patient, out of heaven. I note what you say about your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend, Screwtape says. Now, by materialist friend, he's not talking about someone who is in love with possessions or money. That's a philosophical term for atheism. And he's encouraging Wormwood to make sure that he sees a lot of his patient, sees a lot of his atheist friend. Screwtape continues. 
But are you being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you supposed that the argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. Wormwood's big goal is to keep the patient out of the enemy's clutches. If God is the enemy in the screw tape letters, who is Satan? Throughout the book, Lewis has screw tape refer to the devil as our father below. What did C.S. Lewis really believe about demons and the devil? Our father below, as screw tape called him. For starters, in the preface of the paperback edition of the screw tape letters, Lewis admits he doesn't believe in the devil. I'll explain in a couple minutes. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. In our first episode, we discussed how a passionate speech by Hitler and a boring Sunday sermon swirled in Lewis's imagination and came out as this epistolary novel between demons. Now that we've covered some of the influences behind Lewis's wicked bestseller, let's open this influential book and take a peek at the prolegomena. Prolegomena is a big word for the stuff that comes first. If you pick up a copy of the screw tape letters, you'll see a couple things up front. First, Lewis dedicates the book to J.R.R. Tolkien, as we've already said. But why did he dedicate it to Tolkien? Second, you'll see a couple old quotes about the devil. Those quotes might help us in making sense of Lewis's view of the dark side. We'll tackle that next. Tolkien first. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien met on March 11, 1926, at a faculty meeting at Oxford University. Lewis gives an account of his meeting with Tolkien, describing him as a smooth, pale, fluent little chap. Lewis went on to say, There's no harm in him, only needs a smack or so. C.S. Lewis scholar Colin Durier says, Tolkien was slight of build compared with the thick-set and taller Lewis. He was also, at least in Lewis's view, rather opinionated, hence the need for a smack. Lewis later said Tolkien broke down two of his old prejudices, the first against Catholics, the second against philologists. Tolkien was both. A philologist, by the way, is someone who studies languages. If you know anything about Tolkien, you'll know he would not only study them, he invented them. It was kind of a pastime. Just read The Lord of the Rings if you want to know what I'm talking about. Tolkien and Lewis did become fast friends. I don't know if Lewis ever slapped Tolkien or not. Lewis made that comment as an atheist. I'd imagine he softened his opinion about violence after he became a Christian. Speaking of becoming a Christian, Tolkien had a good deal to do with that too. As Philip and Carol Zaleski point out in their great book, The Fellowship, it was Tolkien who gave Lewis the real slap. Tolkien knocked Lewis out of his atheism into a Christian view of reality. Talk about a rough paradigm shift. After their first meeting, Lewis opined in his diary that Tolkien thinks the language is the real thing in the school and thinks all literature is written for the amusement of men between 30 and 40 and that such men should vote themselves out of existence. The academic program in Oxford put language and literature together. At first, Lewis felt that he was on one side of the equation while Tolkien was on the other. But once Lewis better understood where Tolkien was coming from, he would see he agreed with him. In fact, the two would form a literary alliance around this very topic, 
that would have a lasting impact. Do you know what their literary group was called? Did you guess the Inklings? You are absolutely wrong. The Inklings is a later development. This group called themselves the Cave. As the Zaleskis point out in their book, The Fellowship, the name for the cave was a biblical reference. It comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 22, where a bunch of discontented soldiers show up and show out to support David and oppose King Saul. The cave, to get back to Tolkien and Lewis, fought to reform the approach to language and literature at one of the oldest schools in the world, the University of Oxford. It took them five years before they were finally victorious in reforming a syllabus. Yep, academic change is the slowest kind of change. I should know. I'm an accidental academic. Lewis celebrated this accomplishment in a letter to his brother, Warney, written in October 1931. Lewis wrote, Next year is the first exam held under the syllabus, which my party and I have forced. Lewis described how the cave was victorious in their academic battle. Syllabus defeated. Just a month before writing those words to his brother, Lewis had invited a couple friends for dinner at Oxford University. The first was a lecturer in English, Hugo Dyson. The other was a philologist, Tolkien. Both men were members of the cave. Both men, Dyson and Tolkien, were Christians. That was something C.S. Lewis didn't share in common with them. Not yet, at least. It was amid battling together against the academic system, fighting against the man, where they formed a friendship strong enough, safe enough, for Tolkien to challenge Lewis's most deeply held beliefs. Lewis would not emerge from this conflict unscathed. After dinner, the three men strolled Addison's Walk, a path, a walking path, near Lewis's Oxford office. A strong wind blew through the leaves overhead, making them think for a moment it was about to rain. Lewis said they held their breath. Their conversation turned to God. Here's how Lewis scholar Colin Durier describes the encounter. A long night's talk in September of 1931 capped a months-long conversation. Durier points out that this is actually the culmination of what Tolkien and Dyson have been doing with Lewis for quite a while, sharing their faith with him. Durier goes on to write, On that night, the two friends strolled near Lewis's rooms in Modellin College. The conversation soon turned, as it often did with Tolkien, to myth. Tolkien argued that the Gospels have a satisfying imaginative as well as intellectual appeal demanding a response from the whole person. Tolkien accused Lewis of an imaginative failure in not accepting their reality. A few days later, Lewis capitulated. Now, Lewis later wrote a letter to his best friend from childhood, Arthur Greaves. What more to say about Arthur at some point probably during this season? There's a fascinating friendship between Lewis and Arthur. But Lewis wrote him a letter and he explained how this walk with Hugo, Dyson, and J.R.R. Tolkien led him down a path, or should I say, led him up a path. To use Narnia language, led him further up and further in. 
away from his atheism and towards belief in God. Lewis described to Arthur how he finally conceded and gave in to the reality that he believed in God. Lewis wrote, My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. In his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis describes his conversion in a chapter called Checkmate. Interestingly, Lewis begins the chapter with a quote about hell. That seems to be a bit of a theme in his writing. The quote is from the man Lewis considered his literary mentor, George MacDonald. MacDonald was famous for writing fairy stories. Lewis later said MacDonald's influence was present in everything Lewis ever wrote. And he goes on to say that MacDonald baptized his imagination. Okay, here's the MacDonald quote Lewis begins the chapter about his conversion with. Here's the quote. The one principle of hell is I am my own. Let me read that again. The MacDonald quote is, The one principle of hell is I am my own. It seems like this was Lewis's last fortified defense, his personal autonomy. Lewis was defending it at all cost. And then he raised the white flag. He gave in, as he describes in his own words, as perhaps he writes, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Lewis explains how atheism, belief that there is no God, could no longer defend him against the relentless approach of God. Lewis writes, Really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. All my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with universal spirit. For the first time, I examined myself with a serious, seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Lewis couldn't avoid it. His worldview was crumbling. His talk with Tolkien was the straw that broke the camel's back. Lewis describes what happened after their walk and talk. Lewis writes, You must picture me alone in that room in Modelin, night after night, feeling... Whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps now the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. 
I love that passage from Lewis's writings. And just as a side note, the date of Lewis's conversion that he mentions there is contested among scholars who have studied Lewis's letters and the timeline. But that's another story for another time. Well, that's Jack's story. And if I haven't said it yet, if you didn't know, Lewis, who had a nickname for everything, even had a nickname for himself. When a neighborhood dog died in C.S. Lewis's childhood, the boy named Clive Staples Lewis opted to take the dead dog's name, Jacksey, later shortened to Jack, what most of Lewis's friends called him his entire adult lifetime. Let's say a couple more things about the man to whom Lewis dedicated the screw tape letters. Tolkien, or as Lewis liked to call him, Tollers. Did you know Tolkien helped Lewis land his dream job? Tolkien helped Lewis to be appointed as the chair of Renaissance and English Literature at Cambridge University. Oh, and before I forget, I mentioned Tolkien's wife wouldn't let him hang out at C.S. Lewis's house. Here's why. At least this is what I've heard. About a decade ago, I took a tour of C.S. Lewis's home in Oxford, England for the very first time. I've been back a couple times since then. Lewis called it the kilns. Our guide explained the effect of Lewis's smoking habit. They would ash their cigarettes, Lewis and his brother, and I'm assuming their guest, they would just ash them on the floor and rub it, the ashes, into the carpet, believing it was somehow good for the carpet. And because they smoked so much, the ceilings were discolored. One of Lewis's former students wrote a memoir, and he said that Lewis only smoked cigarettes when he wasn't smoking a pipe. Even with that being the case, his former student estimated that Lewis smoke, uh, smoked over 30 cigarettes a day. You can imagine how the Lewis's home must have looked and smelled. Our tour guide told us that Tolkien's wife was afraid toddlers might catch some kind of disease spending too much time there. So is that why Lewis and Tolkien weren't very close at the end of Lewis's life? Maybe that was part of it. I mean, friendships sadly drift apart for all kinds of reasons. Many friendships have expiration dates. It's just a sad reality. More likely, it was Lewis's late-life marriage to American author Joy Davidman. Tolkien, the ever-devout Catholic, didn't approve of divorce and remarriage, and Joy was divorced. Tolkien referred to Lewis's marriage to Joy as a very odd marriage. We'll have more to say about Joy in later episodes. At the offset of the program, I asked the question, did Tolkien like the book Lewis dedicated to him? In a physical copy of the Screwtape Letters that Lewis gave to Tolkien, Lewis went even further. He included the handwritten note in token payment of a great debt. What debt? I'm sure Lewis felt indebted to Tolkien for all the reasons any person feels indebted to a good friend. And I doubt the late night walk was far from Lewis's mind when he penned those words in token payment of a great debt. Well, I'm sure Tolkien was moved by the gesture. Sadly, he didn't like the book. He felt Lewis needed to spend more time thinking through his beliefs on the topic before hustling towards publication. Keep in mind, Lewis first published these letters as individual articles within a year of getting the idea. Lewis scholar Michael White says that Tolkien disliked these books and believed, probably with some justification, Lewis had not given himself time to come to a clear understanding 
of his religious outlook, that he rushed his thoughts into print without allowing them to mature. This was a regular point of disagreement between the two. Lewis would complain Tolkien took too long to publish. Tolkien that Lewis was too hasty. Maybe that's why Lewis's influence came quickly, but is arguably eclipsed, sadly, in my opinion, by that of Tolkien. Tolkien died a decade after Lewis. After Lewis's death in 1963, Tolkien said this about his dear friend, Jack. Lewis was a very impressionable man, and this was abetted by his great generosity and capacity for friendship. The unpayable debt that I owe to him was not influence, as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Wow. Without Lewis's friendship, we may never have learned of Middle-earth or hobbits or the defeat of Sauron. What might have changed in Screwtape Letters if Lewis went the Tolkien route and took more time to let his beliefs mature? I'm not sure, but we do see ways in which Lewis is trying to make his beliefs more clear in later editions of Screwtape. Some early readers misunderstood Lewis's intent. For example, in the preface to the paperback edition of the Screwtape Letters, Lewis explained that he didn't believe in the devil. Wait, what? Did I just say Lewis didn't believe in the devil? To be exact, now that I have your attention, Lewis did believe in what the Bible describes as the leader of the fallen angels, whom we call the devil or Satan. Lewis didn't believe in some sort of being who was God's equal, what some readers thought Lewis was saying in the Screwtape Letters. Here's what Lewis writes in the preface to the paperback edition. Still, when all allowances have been made, the book has had readers of the genuine sort sufficiently numerous to make it worthwhile answering some of the questions it has raised in their minds. The commonest question is whether I really believe in the devil. Now, if by the devil, you mean a power opposite to God, and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain a perfect badness opposite to the perfect goodness of God. For when you have taken away the very kind of good thing, like intelligence, will, memory, energy, and existence itself, there would be none of him left. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe some of these, by abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God, and as a corollary to us. These we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael. 
Michael is mentioned as an archangel in the Bible, in case you didn't know. You can look it up in Revelation 12, 7. Now that we've covered the dedication to Tolkien, we can flip the page and see what comes next. Here, Lewis includes two quotations, both about Satan. The first is from the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who said, The best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to text of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. The second quote in the opening pages of the Screwtape Letters is from Thomas More. They're listed right there on the page, one on top of the other. Thomas More quipped, The devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. The two theologians Lewis quotes both lived in the 16th century. This was Lewis's sweet spot, his academic area of expertise. Lewis's scholarly masterpiece was a book he spent 15 years working on, which he called his Oh Hell Project. There it is again, hell. In this case, Oh Hell came from the initials of the book, the Oxford History of English Literature. That's where the Oh Hell part comes in. The title goes on to more specifically nuance what Lewis was writing about. It was the Oxford history of English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. It's a big book. And no, I haven't read all of it. I do have a first edition copy in my library of which I've read some lengthy passages. But it's a big book. Did I say that already? Lewis scholar Jerry Root of Wheaton University says Lewis read everything from the 16th century in the Oxford University Library, called the Bodleian. Root says there is no scholar better read on both sides of the issue related to the Reformation. Lewis read them all. Protesters like Luther and Catholic saints like Thomas More. The two quotes promote the notion that an effective way of dealing with Satan is through mockery. Apparently, the devil can't stand it. Enter the Screwtape Letters, a satirical work about the power of God in the life of the Christian that sees the patient, to use Screwtape's term, all the way through to the very end. It reminds me of the passage in Paul's writing, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 2.6 I've got more to say about Lewis and evil, like how Lewis debated an atheist philosopher on this very topic at the Socratic Club about this time and how that philosopher ended up coming to faith. We'll get to that in the next episode. We haven't even made it to the preface of Screwtape yet. Can you believe that? We're two episodes in and we've only covered the background influences and the book's dedication. We'll get to the preface next time. In fact, you could just read it for yourself. But what I'll tell you about in our next episode, what, what's more difficult to find, is the lost preface for the Screwtape Letters, the one Lewis wrote by hand that didn't fully make it into print. It has an extra paragraph. And that extra paragraph is really interesting. It puts a piece in the Screwtape puzzle that connects the demonic letters to Lewis's other imaginative writings. I'm surprised more people don't know about it. I'm excited to be joined next time by another special guest, Trillia Newbell, 
a popular conference speaker, a successful children's author, and the acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers. Tune in to hear what she has to say about God's good design of diversity, writing for children, and cultivating a winsome witness. Stay with us this season for our continued journey through the world of Screwtape. If you missed the first episode, go back to learn more about Adolf Hitler's role in Screwtape's message. Until next time, stay caffeinated, calm, and kind. Thank you for listening to Mere Caffeination, produced by the Center for Worldview and Culture at Southwest Baptist University. To learn more about the center, visit sbuniv.edu forward slash worldview.